This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we're able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. After the initial weeks of the coronavirus global shutdown, we were able to set up remote interviews with many authors. Now, sound quality might be slightly different than our previous podcasts, but they all still contain the same great content that you've come to expect. Today, our guest is the best-selling author of five novels, Fiona Davis. We spoke with her via Zoom in July of 2020 about her latest book, The Lions of Fifth Avenue, by publisher Penguin Random House. Her novels follow a theme. Every one is a work of historical fiction based around a building in New York City. Her settings have ranged from the Dakota Apartments in the 1880s, Grand Central Terminal in the 1920s, to the Chelsea Hotel in the 50s. In The Lions of Fifth Avenue, her setting is the New York Public Library. While researching for the book, she spent a lot of time in the building and was amazed by their collection of historical and literary artifacts. In looking at the documents that they have, you know, like Virginia Woolf's diaries that were written on stationer's notebooks in ink, or an early draft of a Walt Whitman poem with things crossed out, you can see the process of creation and their versions of all these different revisions that show how these authors who we revere how they thought and what words did they discard and then and then reuse or what about the rips that maybe they were frustrated as they were writing that you know or a coffee stain that's left on a on a piece of paper that the author didn't realize would might be worth tens of thousands of dollars one day and it's really magical to be able to see how the authors created what they did and what their thought process was as they went through it We'll hear about her own writing process as well, and more about the library's collections and history that influenced her latest novel. National best-selling author Fiona Davis joins us now on this edition of Talking with Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host this time, Ashley Hasty. Thank you for joining me again this year, Fiona. Thank you, Ashley. This is a, a yearly thing that we do. Even if it's virtual, we're going to do it. Yeah, that's right. I hope we can continue this. Um, I thought I'd start out in my typical way, the questions I ask you every year. Um, for those in the who are viewing who aren't familiar with my blog, I have a series of author interviews, which includes some this or that questions or rapid response answers, just kind of the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, so I thought I'd start with that again. Um, Fiona, you answered these a few years ago now for the blog. Um, so we'll see if your, your answers have changed over the years. No. Uh, the first one is the author you draw inspiration from. Geraldine Brooks. And your favorite place to read a book? In the hammock. Is this at your house or? Yes. You know, yeah. A book character you'd be best friends with? Ooh, what a good question. Um, any of Beatrice Williams's heroines. Yeah, she's so great at yes. creating those strong female characters that are interesting and fun to read and seem like they'd be fun to be around too. Exactly. And they wear cool clothes. So there's yeah. <laughs> so true. Um, pen and paper or computer? I outline in pen in pencil and paper uh, a scene and then I go to Scrivener and do it on my computer. 
your favorite decade in fashion history? Ooh, 1950s. And your signature drink? Um, I would say a Pinot Grigio these days. Very cold. Yes, especially with these hot summers. <laughs> so for those who haven't read your book, could you give us a little synopsis of what it's about? I'd be happy to. Thank you. Yeah, so The Lions of Fifth Avenue um, is set in New York City at the New York Public Library. And there's two timelines. In 1913, it's from the point of view of the, the wife of the superintendent. Her name is Laura. And um, she lives in the library in an apartment that actually existed with her husband and her two kids. And she's surrounded by all this knowledge, but she feels kind of stifled. She wants something more. So she applies to Columbia Journalism School, and her world is really cracked wide open. And then the other timeline is 1993. And that's from the point of view of a curator in a rare book collection in the library who is trying to put on this exhibit of rare books and one goes missing. And she's drawn into these series of book thefts that occurred back 80 years ago, as well as a tragedy that happened to the superintendent's family back then. And I, I like to say it's about the, the magic of the written word and the power of women's voices. So one of the things that first appealed to me about your novels five novels ago, uh, was that you based your books on buildings in New York City. What made you choose the New York Public Library as the setting for this book? You know, the readers, because as I've been giving author talks around the country, including where you are, um, people often during the Q&A will say, hey, have you thought about this building? Have you thought about that building? And I always listen um, because it's, it's people who have the, you know, the same sense of love of New York buildings that I do. And the New York Public Library came up over and over and over. And I thought, well, you know, that might work. Let me investigate it. And I did, and I found some serious surprises. And once I knew those, I knew that was my way in, and I would have to set a book there. Do you remember your first time going to the New York Public Library? Ooh, that's such a good question. I would say... I must have gone in high school because I lived in New Jersey. So we were, we were nearby and we were, we were always going in and out. But, um, and I would always go for research for journalism school. Even when I was an actress, I was helping out making costumes for the shows that we were doing. And we would go to the picture library in the New York Public Library where they had all of these pictures. This was before the internet. And you had to go there in order to see what, you know, 1920s clothes looked like or 1950s. And so probably that was one of the earlier forays in as an adult. So it's always clear that you do extensive research um, for all of your novels, but especially about the library for this one to prepare for writing this story. Can you tell us how you conducted your research and which, in, or which sources influenced you in what ways? Yeah, sure. So as I started looking into the library, I started looking at old articles about it. And I discovered that there was an apartment inside and the superintendent and his wife lived in this apartment um, with their three children back in 1911. They were there for 30 years. Oh, the daughter was born in the library. And I just thought, well, that's amazing. That's such a surprise. And how great to have a family living in the library. Apparently the kids used to play baseball using books as bases until they got in trouble. And once I read that, I thought, okay, that's, that's fantastic. And so it was a lot of looking at old articles, looking at books on the construction of the library, 
Um, learning about the different libraries within the library, like the Berg Collection, which is the rare book um, collection that, that is highlighted in my book. Um, it has, you know, map rooms. It, it's just an incredible place. And I was lucky enough to get um, a seat in the Allen Room. And that's a, a room in the library for, for authors with book contracts. And so you can go there and work there and you can get books delivered to your bookshelf. And so to be working in the library on a book about the library was pretty amazing. <laughs> and so there was research going on on many, many different levels. Did you interview anyone for the research for this book? I did. I, I spoke with a number of librarians, including a librarian named Jean Ashton, who was the head of the library at Columbia University back in the 1990s when a, a really terrible book theft occurred. And she was such an inspiration talking about the theft because that's what I modeled mine on. And she went before the judge after this thief was caught and asked for a harsher sentence. And she, she explained that, you know, he didn't just, just steal a, a book worth X amount of money, but these rare books are a piece of Western history and culture. And the loss has a dramatic impact on scholarly research. She, she said this to the judge, and she explained that libraries are really the safekeepers of these artifacts of the past, and that their value changes over time, like something like um, a woman's diary might not have been valuable 100 years ago, and now it is because our way of thinking has changed. And the judge listened to her and granted the harsher sentence, and later on in 2002, that theft was 1994, and in 2002, there was a law passed for protecting cultural heritage resources, where it said that if you stole something from a museum or a library, you would get a harsher sentence. And so to me, Jean Ashton is just a real hero, and interviewing her was, was just fantastic in terms of, of supplying information and details for the book that I hope really make it sing. That's so interesting. I also heard a little anecdote. I think maybe you have mentioned this in our last interview that you at once asked a librarian where would be the best place to hide a body. <laughs> yes, and that's where they were so helpful. Um, yeah, I reached out to one of, one of the librarians at the New York Public Library because in an early draft of my book, it's not in this one, but an early draft, there was a dead body. And I said to her, you've probably never been asked this before, but if you had to hide a dead body in the library, where would you put it? And she wrote back right away with a great location, and I found it on the floor plan and, and was, you know, off and running. So, yeah, and she admitted that, no, she hadn't gotten that question before. <laughs> I would hope not. I know. <laughs> uh, what is the most interesting thing you learned about the library during your research? Oh, that's, a, you know, it was really interesting to learn about the Berg Collection, which is kind of a library within a library, like I described. And they have over, you know, they have manuscripts, diaries, letters, first editions, um, early drafts of works by all, over 400 authors like Nabokov and Tennyson and Walt Whitman. And they also have really quirky things like a lock of Walt Whitman's hair or Jack Kerouac's boots or Charlotte, Charlotte Bronte's writing desk. And they even have Virginia Woolf's walking stick that she left by the side of the river before she went and killed herself. And, and they're amazing because in looking at these, the documents that they have, you know, like Virginia Woolf's diaries that were written on stationer's um, notebooks in ink or an early draft of a Walt Whitman poem with things crossed out, you can see the process of creation 
And there, there are versions of all these different revisions that show how these authors who we revere, how they thought and, and you know, what words did they discard and then, and then reuse? Or what about the rips that maybe they were frustrated as they were writing that, you know, or a coffee stain that's left on a, on a piece of paper that the author didn't realize would, might be worth tens of thousands of dollars one day. And it's really magical to be able to see how the authors created what they did and what their, their thought process was as they went through it. You include several of those quirky objects that are found in the library. Were those objects inspired by actual objects in the library? Oh, yeah. In fact, the one, the, the cat paw letter opener that mm-hmm. was owned by Charles Dickens, it's in there in a bookcase. And he, he loved his cat, Bob, so much that when Bob died, he had his paw made into a letter opener. And it's dedicated, you know, to Bob. And, um, and, and it shows, A, his love for his cat, but B, back then taxidermy was all the rage, so it wasn't as strange as it seems today. But again, it's just something that is, is kind of wonderful and, and speaks to who he was as a person. So in addition to the library, there is also quite a bit of historical information about the um, heterodoxy club. Could you tell us a little about that and why you wanted to include it in this story? Sure, yeah. So the Heterodoxy Club um, was this club that was founded by an early feminist and scholar and organizer named Marie Jenny Howe in 1912. And what she would do is every two weeks, she would have these meetings above a restaurant on McDougal Street um, for women to come and to talk really openly about the issues of the day. And these are issues that, for me, are, are associated with the 60s and 70s, things like birth control, Um, women's rights, even free love. And back then they were talking about the right to vote. And they would have these very dynamic discussions about what should be done and what can change things. And that era, women were were known as the new woman, was what they were called. And the club was, was just an amazing part of Greenwich Village and New York City history. And I love that they were discussing issues that we're still discussing today, although that's also kind of depressing. It is, yeah. Um, it, yeah. But you're right, it is still very relevant for today, even though it's a historical fiction uh, book. Exactly. So you've written books set in several different time periods, including the 1950s and the dollhouse, the 1880s and 1980s and the address, the 1920s and 1970s and the masterpiece, the 1940s to the 1960s and the Chelsea Girls, and now the 19-teens and the 1990s and the Lions of Fifth Avenue. So do you have a favorite time period to write about? You know, I loved writing about the 1920s in the masterpiece because A, the clothes are so beautiful and and you and we're both fashion, you know, we love the history of fashion. Um, And so that's a lot of fun to research. And also it's just such an interesting time period for New York City where there's so much going on and so much wealth and craziness and, and you know that the depression is looming. And so you get such a dichotomy between the 20s to the 30s. And yeah, so I'd say the 20s, just because it's, they were so crazy. So would you like to write about the 1920s again, or will you continue to explore new decades? I am trying out a couple new decades. Um, actually, no, you know what? They've both been used before, but they're in different ways. The book I'm working on now is set in the 19, late 1910s, 
and then um, the mid-1960s. So it's kind of a different angle on, on those decades. So you originally came to New York City as an actress, and then you studied journalism, and now you're a novelist. Was there a turning point in your life that sent you down the road to being an author? <laughs> yeah, you know, I never imagined I would be an author when I was growing up, or even in my 20s or 30s. It was what someone else did. Um, there was no way. <clears throat> and what I found was I was an actress, and I was at a commercial audition in my late 20s, and it was just a line of tall blondes. And... You know, I, I just thought, ugh. And, and I noticed my friends who were a little older were having a hard time getting work. This is in the 1990s. And then my male friends who were getting older were working more and more because they were aging into these quirky character roles. And at that time, there just wasn't a whole lot out there for women. And that's where I thought, okay, you know, let's pivot. And I applied to Columbia Journalism School, and I'm so glad I did because that was what taught me how to think and write and set me on this whole new path where, you know, not only could I write an article or a thesis, but I later imagined that I could write a book. So I, I very much thank Columbia Journalism School for that. And how did you make the transition from journalism to fiction? You know, I was writing um, articles on health and fitness um, for different magazines and websites. And I just had this idea for a story set around the Barbizon Hotel for Women. In fact, I wanted to read that story, but it wasn't out there. And instead I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll try writing it. And it really was kind of a lark of, let's see if I can do this. I love dual timelines, you know, we'll use two timelines. If I'd realized how hard it is to do that, I would have never attempted it. But I just didn't know what I didn't know. Yeah. And that book, I was just very lucky where it got picked up and, and it got a lot of attention and suddenly I was on a whole new road. And that was in my late 40s. So, you know, it can happen at any time. So at the beginning of this interview, I asked about your favorite place to read, but I also want to talk a bit about your writing process. Do you have a favorite place to write? Yeah, if I'm in the city, I have an apartment in New York City. Um, it's in my study, which has a a south-facing window, so it's very warm and bright and a lot of bookshelves, and that's kind of my, my command center, and a big bulletin board with all my inspiration up there. Um, but if I'm in, at my house, which is a little north of the city, um, it's at the dining room table because it has a view over the backyard, which kind of slopes down to a pond, and it's just dazzling to look out there. And I, I put up a bluebird box this year in quarantine, of course, and because um, that's what you do. And just watching these bluebirds, you know, have their babies and fly around was, was so nice when you're kind of stuck on a, can't figure out the word or the chapter. And you can just take a breath, look at nature and come back to it. I'm picturing that. Is that where your hammock is as well? Just, just to the right. <laughs> yeah. uh, so what is your process from this first spark of an idea to submitting your first draft? Are, would you consider yourself more of like a planner or a pantser as they say? Uh, I definitely plan ahead. Um, I like to figure out who the characters are. I figure out the building first. That's most important. Do a ton of research. And then I start figuring out who the characters are and what they want. And then I put obstacles in their way. Um, and that's what makes a plot. And, and I do figure out, because there's two timelines and usually an element of mystery that really drives the story forward, I like to plan it out so I'm not giving away too much in one timeline than I am in the other. 
um, and I'm not spoiling any surprises or plot twists. And it's, it's awful. It's so hard. <laughs> there are days that are just crazy. Um, but because I've plotted it out, as I start writing it, it comes easy because I, I have to fill in the blanks and things do change, but I have a pathway that I know I can get there. So this is the fifth novel you've published, if I've counted correctly. Yeah. Um, has your process changed between writing your first and publishing this novel? I would say there's maybe a couple fewer drafts. Um, I've, maybe I've learned something. I don't know. But I find as I'm, I'm just working on the first draft of the next book and reading through it, and I find it's a little further ahead than the earlier books were. So I think I'm, you know, I've, I've figured out every author has bad habits of reusing words over and over. And, and I think as you learn them, you stop yourself as you're typing instead of having to fix a draft. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's getting a little easier, but each one has been its own challenge because they're all completely different stories and trying to pull them together is, is not easy, but it's so much fun. I have to say it, it keeps me very occupied. So what is next for you? Can you tell us a little bit about your next project and what building inspired it? Sure. So the next one, which is, like I said, set in 1919 and 1966, is set at the Frick Collection. And that's this gem of a building on Fifth Avenue that was built by Henry Clay Frick, and he and his family lived in the building. And then after his wife died, it was turned into a museum because they had an extensive art collection, which was really beautiful. And so I love the idea that it's a, a house and a museum, and I'm playing with um, both of those ideas, and, and we'll see where it goes. It's slowly but surely. Uh, so I'd like to ask a little bit about what you're reading now and what you'd recommend the viewers read. Sure. So there's a, a book um, that's coming out September 1st called 50 Words for Rain by an author named Asha Lemmy, L-E-M-M-I-E. And it's got the most beautiful cover. And it's um, post-World War II Japan from the point of view of a girl who is half Black and half Japanese. And it's, it's a really original story. I've never read anything like it. And it's a debut, so that's very exciting. Um, I just finished The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, which, of course, was great. And what I'm reading now, which I love, is Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, which is um, Shakespeare's wife's point of view about... Her, her early life and marriage. And it's just steeped in beautiful language and historical accuracy. So I'm in heaven. Thank you so much, Fiona, for joining me today. Um, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. I hope we can do this every year, COVID or not. We shall do it every year. I, thank you so much for the opportunity and, and just for all your support. You've been there from the very beginning and I truly appreciate it. That's national best-selling author Fiona Davis as we spoke with her in July of 2020 about her latest book, The Lions of Fifth Avenue, by publisher Penguin Random House. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking with Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking with Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The supervising producer for the video version of this program was Julie Winkle. The host was Ashley Hasty. Editor, Peter Foggy. Production support by Jane Ballou and Christina Chastain. And HEC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. 
The Talking With Authors podcast executive producer is Christina Chastain. Podcast audio editing by Ben Smith. This episode's podcast producer was Paul Langdon, and I'm your host, Rod Milo. Special thanks to the St. Louis County Library and The Novel Neighbor. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. You wake up, you get dressed, you prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, teacher of the year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Houle, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.